listeners. Um, my name is Dr. Richard Fagan, and I am director of Biofarm at UCL Business. We are the wholly owned subsidiary of UCL, and we are the tech transfer organization for UCL. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Professor Charlie Swanton. Um, Charlie has it'd be fair to say has multiple, multiple roles. He is a professor at UCL with a laboratory at UCL. He's also a principal group leader at the Francis Crick Institute, and he's also the chief clinician for Cancer Research UK. Morning, Charlie. Good morning, Rick. So tell me, how does one person handle three roles like that? Well, I guess I haven't always been doing three roles. Um, it's, it's a more recent phenomenon. Um, and I, I think the answer to your question is probably uh, early mornings, late evenings and um, seven-day-a-week working. There's, there's always something to do. But the job that I do, principally uh, scientific-driven focus of the, of the work, is so intrinsically exciting and interesting that uh, it doesn't really feel like work. So um, at weekends, in the evenings... You're just constantly thinking about this, and and so that enables you to be more efficient, in, more efficient with your time, and and free up time during the weekdays to do other things, including work with Cancer Research UK, and of course my clinical role at, at UCLH, which, albeit modest, is still a, a significant component of what I do on a week-to-week basis in the context of how it informs the science, the questions, um, and the aspiration to make lives better for patients. Wow, you're a role model. I wouldn't go that far, but it's it's a great job. So um, we're here today to talk about um, a part of your work, Tracer X, and um, a company that was formed out of that work. Um, can you tell us about Tracer X, Charlie? Yeah, of course, Rick. So so Tracer X is a longitudinal program that was conceived at University College London uh, in partnership with the Francis Crick Institute back in 2013 to understand how cancers evolve over space and time. Uh, and the idea was we would, re- we would recruit about 800 patients into a clinical study of non-small cell lung cancer of early stage disease where we would uh, take their surgically resected samples uh, and follow patients over time to either cure at five years or recurrence. And if the patients suffer disease recurrence after primary surgery, which we estimate about 50% will, we ask for a recurrence biopsy of the metastatic disease, that is the disease that's spread beyond the chest, to understand how this process of what we call tumour metastasis evolves, that is the dissemination of cancer cells from the primary tumour in the lung through to distant sites in the bone, the liver, the brain, etc. And, and the reason we're interested in that is that we know that metastatic disease kills a patient and we have to understand that process much better. And its growth is an evolutionary phenomenon stemming from a few single clones within the primary tumour. And we reasoned that if we had this longitudinal cohort study, we would begin to ask some very fundamental questions about how cancers evolve and adapt over space and time, how they adapt to uh, evolutionary pressures like drug treatment, uh, how they adapt to colonise new sites of disease like like in the in the brain or the bone or the liver, um, and ultimately how that relates to what we call this sort of heterogeneous primary tumour, this sort of cauldron, if you like, of diversity um, that ultimately uh, fosters the evolution of new clones that may be fitter from the last that enable cells, cancer cells and clones to spread over space and time. And by understanding that process and also understanding how the immune system restricts this process, 
we figured we might come up with better biomarkers and hopefully better therapeutic approaches to limit metastasis and drug resistance. And so, of course, this is you doing this study on lung cancer. Would this be applicable to all cancers, say like prostate cancer? Yeah, very much so. So the tools we've developed through TracerX are already being used in other diseases. In fact, we've also set up other TracerX programs, including one in renal cancer um, that Samra Churalich runs um, at the Francis Crick Institute in the Royal Marsden. Um, and, and that uh, has, has taken a similar approach to understand how tumours evolve in kidney cancer. Um, now, I think it's fair to say that there are commonalities between kidney and, and lung, but there are also differences. Um, what, is, what is in common, of course, is the approach and the software tools that, that we have developed that, that we hope will enable the community to better understand disease evolution. I think the thing about lung cancer is it's a disease with a very high what we call mutational burden because the majority of patients smoke and smoking induces DNA mutations. So these tumours have a very high number of mutations, much higher than um, most other cancers. Um, and they also have a high degree of what we call chromosomal instability, where the chromosomes rearrange. So in, t- in the context of cell-to-cell variation, I think um, lung cancer is probably at the most extreme end. Um, and all other, most other cancers will, be, um, um, uh, will, will display features similar but not identical to lung cancer and probably uh, less severe in extent and diversity. Mm. So <clears throat> when did you start thinking about doing this? So I was, funnily enough, I was thinking about that question on the way over here this morning. Um, and I guess probably in the mid-2000s when I was a trainee uh, oncologist, it was clear that these sorts of so-called magic bullet therapies like Herceptin and EGFR inhibitors like Tarceva and what have you were having eff- efficacy, but the efficacy, despite their terms, magic bullets, would be limited. It would last maybe six to eight months, possibly 12 months, and all patients would develop resistance. Mm. Now, that didn't make sense in the context of what we knew about lung, about, about cancer evolution at the time, which was sort of the linear model of evolution, where essentially all cells in a tumour were the same. So we reasoned that for, for, for resistance to be most um, elegantly explained, tumours would have to be evolving in a branched evolutionary manner, much as Peter Knoll had postulated in 1976, but his work had been pretty much ignored. So we re- revisited it, but now with new technologies, and we applied those new technologies in the context of TracerX to decipher whether or not branched evolution, so-called Darwinian evolution, was occurring in tumours. And of course it is and was and always has been. Um, and that ultimately is the reason for drug resistance, why we fail to cure metastatic disease, because the disease is so heterogeneous, so diverse, and, and every cancer cell is different. So there will always be a cancer cell in the body resistant to one or more therapies that the doctor uses. Is this why cancer vaccines, which were much hyped, say, in the 80s, um, as going to be the magic bullet, really have not been successful? Yeah, so that's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I think... There are several reasons why cancer vaccines are, 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 have been less than successful, it's fair to say. First of all, I think they're being used in the wrong setting. So they've been tested and trialled in general in advanced metastatic disease. So just like you wouldn't use a vaccine to treat an established COVID infection, why would you use a vaccine to treat an established cancer? Um, so where I see the uh, benefits, uh, potential opportunities of vaccine therapies would be in a preventative setting, firstly. So that is trying to vaccinate a patient before they get cancer to prevent cancer onset. And 
in the Cancer Research UK Lung Centre at UCL, we have investigators like Kevin Litchfield thinking about this very problem, establishing such trials where we would vaccinate, for example, heavy smokers against common driver mutations associated with smoking, like the KRAS G12C mutation. And then the other area I think we are going to see efficacy of vaccines in will be in the adjuvant setting after surgical resection of the primary tumour, when the disease burden is very, very low indeed, as to your point, when heterogeneity is very, very low. Um, And there we can give personalised vaccines against the patient's own primary (coughs) tumour to prevent the cancer from coming back. Um, I think the main reason why vaccines are not efficacious in established disease is because of the ongoing immune suppression. Mm. The cancers have this sort of evolutionary tug of war, if you like, between cancer and the immune cell that sort of anaesthetizes the immune cell and puts the immune cell to sleep. And so there's such extensive immune suppression in established disease that vaccines can't reawaken or reinvigorate the immune response. Right. Thank you. So... We started thinking about about this, and um, when did it become reality? Um, so you received funding from CRUK. When was that? That was in 2013. So the trial was formally opened in early 2014, and as of last week, we've recruited about 820 patients into the study um, with a median follow-up of about four to five years. So we have very extensive follow-up. We have... Um, tens of thousands of biological specimens from these individual patients who've generously given their time and tumour material to the study. Um, and I'm excited to say that I think the team, and I mean the team, it's a consortium, it's not me, it's, it's the team across UCL and Manchester and actually across the planet, have made some major advances in this disease and our understanding of how uh, lung cancer evolves, how the immune system shapes the, uh, the uh, evolution of non-small cell lung cancer, how lung cancers ultimately evade the adaptive immune response through loss of recognition molecules like the human leukocytes antigen. And ultimately, we think how the metastatic process operates. And we've got papers coming out, we hope, in the not-too-distant future that will allude to that very point. And <clears throat> UCL's involvement in the whole in the whole uh, Tracer X study is, I know that um, we are sponsors, so yeah. UCL receives the grant from um, CRUK, and we are administrating, actually running the trial through the um, UCL Cancer Trial Center with Alan Hackshaw. Um, what's the Crick's involvement? So the so so let's just go back to UCL's involvement first before I answer the Crick's involvement. So so first and foremost. This study wouldn't have been possible without University College London. Um, as you say, they sponsor the study. Um, we have a world-class clinical trial centre run by Professor Alan Hackshaw, the cancer trial centre that is just phenomenal and has been a huge support. And, and um, uh, leadership, their leadership of Tracerex really from its inception to now has been outstanding. And Alan has just been a great colleague and friend. And, and you know, my hat's off to them really for everything they've done. They've just been superb. And we really wouldn't be here without them. And, of course, UCL for supporting it. Um, you, you asked how I do all of these jobs. Well, UCL um, is a fantastic employer to work for. They, they really enable me to roam freely with my ideas um, and, and do the sorts of, sorts of ambitious work we're doing and also link that between the CRIC and UCL uh, and the UCL Cancer Institute, which has obviously been central to the success of this programme too. And so my job is split roughly... 50-50 between the Crick and UCL, and, and I have labs on both sites. UCL lab predominantly is involved in processing of the tissue, storage of the tissue, and, um, uh, extracting DNA, RNA, and sequencing the tissue. Um, and uh, the Crick 
by and large is involved in analysing that, the data that we get from the off the sequencing pipelines. The major sequencing does occur at the CRIC. The clinical sequencing occurs here at UCI and the Cancer Institute. Um, and the sequencing data from the CRIC goes into the CRIC servers and through into the lab, both at the CRIC and UCL, where our bioinformaticians will analyse the data to be able to understand and ultimately decipher the evolution of each patient's disease on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. So the CRIC really provides the computational firepower, the sequencing firepower, and space and uh, support for probably 10 dry lab scientists, the bioinformaticians that enable this work and also wet lab scientists that take our hypotheses that we get from the, from the tracer sequencing data that enable us then to test those hypotheses in the laboratory. So it's really a beautiful synergy, I think, between the university, the hospital, the BRC, that also have supported TracerX to the tune of about 10 or 15% of all of its investments, so hugely generous, um, and uh, the CRIC. So, so it's a wonderful uh, uh, synergy between all three organizations. <clears throat> And um, moving on, a company was set up around TracerX. What, what do you see as the commercial application of TracerX? So that's an excellent question also. I think the commercial application of TracerX is one where we have to embrace complexity. We have to embrace an understanding of cancer evolution, and we have to turn evolution against the tumor. So the question is, how do we do that? We've you know, been thinking about this for some time, and I say we. This has been a collaboration between Sergio Casada, Carl Peggs, and Mark Laudel, three uh, UCL and Royal Free professors um, who have been really leading the way in the context of tumour immunology. And I always felt that if we were going to beat cancer evolution, it would be through leveraging the body's own immune system. The question is, how do we do that? And back in 2016, my lab, in collaboration with Sergio's, found evidence of these flags on tumour cells, which we call clonal antigens. So these are mutations that are found in the earliest tumour cell, present in all tumour cells across the body. And surprisingly, we found immune cells, T cells, that specifically recognise these immune flags. And now we have a system set up where we can extract immune cells that specifically recognise these clonal or truncal antigens. Um, and we can expand them ex vivo and give them back to patients. And the idea is by doing so, we hope to achieve long-term control of tumours to prevent tumours from developing resistance because in contrast to modern cancer-targeted therapies which only ever target one flag in a tumour's trunk of the evolutionary tree, we're developing T-cell therapies that target multiple truncal mutations in the patient's evolutionary tumour tree to prevent drug resistance from occurring, we hope. Yes, and <clears throat> it was the basis of that that formed, I believe it was two patent filings that we filed, um, right. UCLB and Cancer Research UK, yeah. um, because this is a Cancer Research UK funded study, so we have to co we collaborate with them in those. And um, I know that we started speaking to Syncona, which is um, back then was the Wellcome Trust investment arm, um, but it's now a fully fledged VC on its own, about setting up a company around this. And um, <clears throat> I worked with Phil Loyer from CRUK and Veronique Buralt from the Crick in regards to setting this company up. And it wasn't a small feat. I remember it well, yes. <laughs> um, because you got three different, almost three different, looking after three different institutions, CRUK, yeah. the Crick, and yeah. UCLB looking after UCL. And we all had to make sure that our interests were all aligned. That's right. Yeah. So, a, so phenomenal, that, a phenomenal achievement, actually. Yeah. 
that was so that was um, very interesting. And so that was set up in 2016 with a 17.5 million pound investment by um, by by a Sincona. Yeah. Now, when you get into a commercial <laughs> setting, it's quite different from an academic setting. How do you how do you how what was what was your involvement in the beginning and what's your involvement now? So in the beginning, my involvement in the commercial setup was obviously to help write the business plan, to think about how we could take these findings that you mentioned that we patented um, into the clinic through the commercial umbrella of this company, Achilles. Um, and that was done in partnership with, with Carl Peggs, with Sergio Casada, Mark Laudel, and Sincona, principally Iraj Ali, who really has been, um, the, I guess, the business um, business stroke scientific brains behind Achilles since its inception. Um, and we turned that into reality, and my role was always to provide the um, evolutionary insights and support in the context of um, bioinformatics and to transfer our pipelines into the company, um, and that, that would enable Sincona's new, fully, new, new, new uh, fledged company, uh, Achilles, to, to develop... Uh, bioinformatics algorithms to be able to predict clonal mutations, truncal mutations in tumours, um, essentially without the need for much human oversight. Um, and our laboratory collaborated with uh, Sincona and Achilles during that period um, and um, to, to set things up. So since then, my position's mainly been based as a sort of scientific advisor. Um, I'm on their scientific advisory board that meets um, regularly throughout the year. We troubleshoot results. We, Serge and I and, and Carl talk regularly about uh, the progress of the company, what's working, what's not working, how we can make things better, etc. Um, and uh, it's been a huge amount of fun, I have to say. It's been very rewarding. I've learnt a lot. Um, I've also learnt that the commercial world is very different from the academic world. Mm. We can talk about that in a minute or two, um, which is fascinating in, in and of its own right. Um, and I really have huge admiration for people who, who um, give up everything in a way and, and move from science into business and, and um, take these big risks, these giant leaps of faith that are going to be required to advance patient care. Because as we know, probably less, far less than 10% of biotech companies will end up surviving. Mm. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> so I've been working with you probably for about... Ten years yeah. now, maybe if not, yeah. bit, maybe if not a bit longer. And of course, when we set up a company, um, you have to look out for the commercial interests of that company. Oh yeah, but yeah. you've also got to be able to carry on with your academic research yeah. at UCL, at the Crick, um, etc. And um, that in itself has brought some challenges, shall I say? It has in regards to making sure that you know when. Um, when we are looking to collaborate with other people using the using the intellectual property which was licensed into Achilles that um, we live up to our obligations with Achilles yeah. but also allow you the academic freedom that that you need so quite often um, again myself will be speaking to will be speaking to the crick making sure that we're all on board and also um, having to work working with CRUK to make sure that yeah. we don't cross a line that we shouldn't cross. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I made a decision very early on that whilst I wanted to be involved in setting up a company um, and wanted to see what the other side was like and to experience the sort of commercial side, 
I didn't want to jump ship completely and lose my academic job because I get so much enjoyment out of discovery science um, and being able to just pursue my own views and thoughts and ideas freely without the pressure of um, delivering on the bottom line, so to speak. And um, both UCL, CIUK, both UCL and CIUK were incredibly supportive of that, um, as was Achilles, actually, to be fair. Um, and I've, I've been able to have just the right level of input into, into Achilles, um, I think it's fair to say. And that's enabled me to carry on my lab. But as you say, there have been some challenges. And, and with, with three partners, CIUK, UCL and the Crick, it can become incredibly complicated when negotiating contracts, negotiating MTAs, etc., with other organisations and institutions that want to partner with us. Um, and I think you know this is all a, this is all a big partnership. It, it has to be like a family in a way. And you know, whilst we all have our differences and frustrations, and things may not be moving as fast as we want them to move occasionally, um, I think we all no, have known each other for long enough, and we know each other well enough that um, uh, you know the odd email pointing out problems in the pipeline and what have you um, is always taken extremely well. Um, and I've always found UCL business a, a pleasure to work with in this in this domain. And, and, you know, I really feel that they have done their best to look out for our, our academic interests, which was quite a surprise in retrospect, because, you know, UCL B's job is to create profit, um, not necessarily to look after the academic interests of an individual professor. But I really feel they have done that, as have CIUK and the Crick. So, it's been a um, it's been a tremendous journey actually, and I think they've whilst there've been difficulties along the way through nobody's fault. Um, I think this is this has been hugely illuminating and extremely rewarding. So, <clears throat> as I said we set it up in 2016 with a 17 and a half million investment, then in 2019 and went on to raise 100 million in a Series B. Um, oversubscribed. Were you surprised by that? Very surprised. Incredibly surprised, actually. I, I, it, it all happened incredibly quickly, um, uh, and uh, you know, at the time, I thought that was a huge amount of money. But it's only in recent times that I've realised how expensive it is to run a company and how expensive it is to run these clinical trials. You really need this much money in the bank to be able to do these clinical studies. So another good reason why commercialising our research was the only option if we wanted to see whether we were right or not. I could targeting clonal neoangiogens arrest the development of, of tumours, um, and I think that that's that's an incredibly important question to ask, um, and one that we could not have addressed if we carried on just running our own laboratory exclusively for the next ten years. So, no. so, so Achilles and the partnership with UCLB has been absolutely central to, to extending my laboratory in many ways. Yeah, and I I agree. You know, we can only take clinical trials so far here in the academic setting. Ultimately, they have to go into a commercial Absolutely. organization to get it to market Absolutely. and patient benefit. Absolutely. Um, we're not, we're, we're, we are a university, we're not a drug company. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the average program grants at UCL is about, uh, sorry, at CRUK, is about two million pounds over five years. We, we needed 200 million to run these clinical studies. So there's no way we could get 100 programme grants from, from one funder. No. Um, it's just totally impossible and unfeasible. Yeah, and that, yeah, that formed the basis for their um, public listing in April 2021 mm. on NASDAQ. Um, and they raised $175.5 million, which is, um, yeah. was, was just incredible. It's astonishing, astonishing. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, and, and this was all, you know, during the COVID pandemic as well, which made it even more extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And um, so where is Achilles right now? So Achilles <clears throat> is um, doing very well. I think it's, it's uh, we've got, we're fortunate to have both Sergio and Carl deeply embedded in the company. So Sergio is their CSO, Carl is their CMO. Um, and that makes a, a huge difference to both the, the development of the technology and also the implementation of that technology into the clinical setting. Um, they've both been fantastic. And um, so, so where are we? We, we are currently running first-in-man studies with a new dose schedule of a higher dose that we're testing, just beginning to test. We've already seen some activity in lung cancer, which I'm delighted about. Um, what next? Only time will tell. I think it's relatively slow to treat patients because of the process. You need to find the right patient that fits the inclusion criteria. It's, it's not always a, a rapid um, as rapid recruitment as, as, as we would all we would, would all might like. But then again, so does the preparation of the cell product take time too. Mm. So, so there's sort of combination of, 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 of challenges here. Um, but suffice to say, I think the company's doing exceptionally well. Uh, Iraj is a tremendous CEO and um, um, we are very excited to see the next set of data. Yeah, because I should just point out to the listeners, these are very complex treatments. They're not a small molecule. I'm not saying small molecules no. aren't complex, but this is a cell-based therapy. That's right. And Sorry, I should have explained that. And yeah. A, yeah, very, very yeah. complex. Um, great. So what's next for Professor Charlie Swanton? Well, that's a jolly good question. So we've recently developed an interest in lung cancer and never smokers, principally to ask the question, how does cancer start in, in never smokers? reasoning that prevention is better than cure. Um, and uh, it's very difficult to answer that question. So patients often ask me, how did I develop lung cancer? I'm a never smoker, I exercise well, I eat well, but I develop lung cancer. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is that there are associations with the disease, but no direct causations. And one key association has always been with air pollution and lung cancer. So we set up a study about five years ago to look at that association in more detail, and we developed some quite deep insights into this during lockdown through collaborations with Public Health England and others, showing a tight correlation between increasing levels of air pollution and risk of lung cancer in never smokers. So then we exposed mice to, to air pollution and showed a dose-dependent increase in number of lung tumours in mice exposed to air pollution. But then the question is, how does air pollution cause lung cancer? Because what we found in these tumours from patients who had never smoked, there's no increase in mutations um, similar to what we see in uh, smoking lung cancer. In, in smoking lung cancer, there's a very high number of cancer mutations caused by smoking. But air pollution does not cause those mutations. So how is air pollution causing lung cancer? And what we found is air pollution is causing lung cancer through an inflammatory axis. That is, it's, it's stimulating a population of white cells called the macrophage to release a chemokine, a protein called um, interleukin-1-beta. And that interleukin-1-beta transforms a progenitor cell in the lung called the alveolar type 2 cell into a cancer stem cell only if it encodes an EGFR-activating mutation. Mm. So there's a combination of bad luck. The cell has to have an activating mutation and exposure to air pollution where the macrophage has to be exposed to air pollution to stimulate that mutant cell to form a tumour. And this, I think, unravels a whole new area of how cancers initiate independent of DNA mutations. And what's fascinating about this is it turns out that the majority of environmental carcinogens do not cause DNA mutations. So this may actually open the door to our understanding much more broadly of how environmental carcinogens cause cancer independent of calling, 
causing DNA mutagenesis. So we're going to be studying a lot more of that subject over the next five years. Excellent. Well, I, I, continue, uh, I continue to be excited to work with you, Charlie. And let me just say thank you very much for coming in and speaking to our listeners. And thanks to the listeners. Well, a big thank you to you, Rick, for everything you've done and your team. You've been central to our success. So thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today.